Welcome to the UK Investor Magazine podcast, the latest on shares, markets and investments, now available on your Amazon Alexa. Hello and welcome to the UK Investor Magazine podcast, now also available on the UK Investor Magazine mobile app. Um, today's and Wednesday's podcast, as usual, we're joined once again very kindly by Alan Green. Alan, thank you very much for being on the podcast today. Good morning again, John. Good to be back. So we've uh, we've got a few interesting stocks that we're we're going to discuss, and, and one that I know a lot of uh, listeners and readers uh, have have an interest in. So we'll we'll move on to those after we we start off, Alan, by looking at um, small caps. So what what I want to do initially is we, we, we touch on generally at the, at the beginning of our podcast on the on the main markets, the FTSE one hundred. Um, you know the, the major indices around the world, but but this week I, I want to move um, on to the subject of, of small caps, and of course we do cover London listed small caps individually in in some detail, um, but we don't really look at the the aim as a whole, and um, we haven't especially haven't done recently. But what I want to do today is is try and make some comparisons against the small cap market in the United States because that is a market that has had a tremendous rally on the back of uh, the news about vaccines and, and also, of course, uh, news that Joe Biden will be the next president of the United States. Yeah. So to, to, to give us some, some context, and, and these are performances going back to the close of the Friday before we had uh, the news of the vaccine from Pfizer. So um, we're going to be going back there for just over two weeks, and that's going to be from the 6th of uh, November these these performances are from. So we're looking at the, the AIM markets here in London. Now, over that period, the AIM market's up 3.4%. However, in the United States, we have seen a rally there of, of 9%. And um, just to make comparisons to uh, the, the large cap markets, uh, over that period, the FTSE 100 is up 7.6%. Whereas in the United States, the S&P is only up about 3%. So we're seeing a big outperformance in Mm. the US small cap markets and a relative underperformance in the AIM market. How much of that do you think is down to to Biden getting in uh, and reigniting the appetite for for risk in the United States? And, And how much do you think that's down to people looking at the UK and having some fears over Brexit and not want to be getting into the riskier end of the market? That's a very good point, Jonathan. I, I think we said a couple of weeks ago that, um, you know, whatever the outcome of the US election, there would be a, a sort of relief rally. But to pick up on your on your first point about the the uh, discrepancy uh, in valuations from 6th of November in AIM and in 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 the in the U.S. small cap market, um, I think that, that that's down to a number of factors. Um, firstly, we've said before on the on the podcast that if stocks are dual listed, um, and I think we spoke about Myriad a couple of weeks ago when Myriad listed onto the OTC market into the U.S., its shares literally went from twenty p to thirty five thirty six p overnight, and that's simply because you uh, U.S. investors. Um, are more bullish and value small cap technology, uh, pharmaceutical stocks uh, in a different way. They'll put a greater valuation on them. And I think we've 
seen this time and time again. We saw it with Tiziano Life Sciences and and other other dualistic companies. So um, maybe there maybe there is a strategy there in itself. You know, um, if you're looking for 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 big returns, look for companies that um, uh, are, are have the intention of dual listing, and uh, the gains there could be higher. But nonetheless, um, we have seen uh, the the A market is uh, is made up uh, that there are an awful lot of uh, resource and mining companies in, in there. We've seen a pullback in the gold price, which has partly been responsible for that. But I think by and large, since the Pfizer announcement, the um, a lot of the a lot of the gains this year have come from COVID stocks. You know, uh, companies manufacturing PPI um, equipment, manufacturing vaccines, testing equipment, and so on. And of course, as soon as we heard the news, some of those—I mean, the Vaxer, I think fell from one uh, one hundred and seventy pence down to ninety pence uh, within a few hours. Um, and uh, we've seen similar similar falls for Novasite and uh, and other stocks that. Uh, had a had a COVID element to them, um, so so I think that's probably the primary response. Uh, pr- those are the primary reasons uh, for the falls in AIM. But of course, in the US markets now, um, you've got uh, uh, people are more bullish on the stocks, regardless of whether or not a vaccine is found. They tend to uh, take the bottle is half full approach rather than the bottle is half empty, which seems to be the um, the attitude of of, of uh, of AIM investors. Um, and of course, um, you know, there's now some certainty in terms of policy making, uh, in terms of uh, foreign policy, in terms of strategy, in terms of support from, for business, because we've now got five years of a of a Biden administration. So, I mean, I can understand to see the reasons there for, for the growth there in the United States, that there's significant value in their in their small cap markets here, which there is here to some extent in, in yeah. the UK markets. Do, do you think, Alan, that there is a element of people being concerned about what the next three months could bring in terms of Brexit and yeah. um, look at, looking at uh, um, smaller cap UK shares and thinking that, that, that you know, they're high growth companies which inherently are higher risk, but having that shadow of Brexit there at the moment, a potentially hard Brexit, that they're they're feeling that you know the, the risk is too great to be looking at the UK small cap market, even though a lot of the companies there are operating overseas. I mean, do, do you think Brexit's mm. one, of, one of the elements they're holding? Uh, I think Brexit's certainly an element. Uh, and and again, the one thing the one thing that we know is that markets hate uncertainty. You know they. If there's an uncertain outcome there, then the money tends to get taken off the table. You know, people, investors keep their hands in their pockets. And, and of course, Brexit is a factor in this. Um, and uh, I, th- I think there's also possibly a lack of confidence in the, in the, in the Johnson administration, too, in the, way, in the way it's been handled. But um, I, th- I, think, uh, I think any premier coming in to deal with the sort of year he's had to deal with would have, uh, would have had some would have faced some uh, a crisis of confidence at, at some point. But yeah, Brexit is certainly an issue. Um, and I, I guess you could say, you know, now now Biden's in, uh, even though Trump won't leave, the, won't leave the White House and refuses to admit defeat. Now you've got the Biden administration. You've got five years visibility for the markets going forward. So uh, regardless of how Brexit uh, 
Brexit ends up, whether it's a hard Brexit or whether it's a negotiated end game. Um, I think once it's decided, then they'll we may well see a consequential relief rally to a point um, in the UK markets as well. So number of factors in play, but um, but also you know if there is if there are, if there's another surge in commodity prices then that will carry some of the junior gold mining stocks that we've spoken about over the past few months. That will that will carry them forward as well. Indeed. So I, th- I think this is going to be a theme that we do revisit as we as we move towards the, the end of the year here and, and see how those markets compare and fare um, going through. So as I mentioned at the beginning, we have three very interesting equities, uh, again, in the small cap, area in London. And to start off with, Alan, we're going to touch on Bidstack. So Bidstack's one that we've discussed in some detail on the podcast before. It's, it's a fairly popular stock. It uh, was uh, for being um, one of the, the first movers on in-game advertising. However, I've, I've made the point previously that it's somewhat squandered that first mover advantage. But there has been something you've been looking at there uh, in the last couple of weeks, Alan. So what, what have you seen? Okay, so, yeah, it, it's a very good point, Jonathan. Uh, and I take I take your point as well that, uh, um, yeah, Bidstack, it had first mover advantage. And I think, um, I think uh, last year there were uh, really great expectations around the stock in terms of revenue. And, of course, it didn't deliver. But that's now starting to change. And I think we're... We are, in a sense, reaching not a crunch point, but a but a, a, a pivot point for the stock in terms of its perceived future value. But just to address the the, the marketplace first of all, I did speak about this, and, and I'm going to make a, a couple of points. And also, um, uh, there's something I stated in a, a research podcast that I did over the weekend. Um, but firstly, this is, as you know, an enormous market. I mean, it's it's worth. 150 billion last year, and uh, the market, the global market for gaming, is estimated to be well over 250 billion um, in 2025, and that's that's just uh, that's just four years away. Um, there are now three billion gamers worldwide, and that's growing all the time. Um, so, of course, what Bidstack has done, people are playing these games, and um, and I know my you know my son and his friends play the, play these these games, and and also they spend hours watching people. Uh, watching people play games. People have YouTube channels and they play these games on the channels showing how to make the moves and get the cheats and all the rest of it. And um, I'm, I'm baffled that, uh, you know, the kids still watch this, but hey, they do. And, uh, and that's the market. And that's what we're, that's what BizSack is selling into. So I, I, I understand and really appreciate the potential here. So what BizSack have, they've developed a platform agnostic uh, uh, advertising or means of serving advertising onto mobile onto gaming platforms, and this includes mobile gaming platforms too. So, whereas years ago you'd have bought your bought your game and stuck it in the in the player, and um, and you'd seen the you'd see the hoardings around the football pitch um, when you play it in ten years' time, those hoarding ads will still be the same. Bidstack are now serving ads to those hoardings, so you'll see live ads that are current and with the times, and and that's that's a massive step forward. So. It's, it's dynamic ad placement, and of course, there's no need to wait for a new game title to be released because it'll be served, and uh, the, the the ads will be served, and also, of course, it'll be profiled too. So, according to the the gamer's profile, who they are, what they like, their interests, um, the ads reaching them will reflect that. 
So Bidstack, as you said, Jonathan, they had a first move advantage. Um, they start out with Sega Football Manager being the first title, um, and they've run uh, numerous case studies uh, with MG, Unilever, Audi, Volkswagen, BBC, Warner Brothers, Vodafone, and so on. Um, they had they have a joint venture joint venture with Dentsu, the advertising giant, uh, which potentially gives them access to uh, uh, 50, 60 billion marketplace uh, or, or market spend that they generate from some 60, 60, 60 markets around the world. Um, they announced a partnership with Gfinity, Venatus, and of course we've spoken about Gfinity before, the esports platform, which again is absolutely huge. Um, they're working with Codemasters on a number of games. They're working with Ubisoft. Um, and I did say in a research podcast at the weekend that they are working with EA Sports. Now, to the best of my knowledge, I know that there are some screenshots on the Bidstack website that I believe originate from EA Sports games. But um, uh, Bidstack also own the uh, the, the, the full prevention uh, platform PubGuard and EA Sports are a client of PubGuard in that regard. So there is a, a connection there with eSports. With e um, this platform was surveyed and uh, and independently researched by a company called Lumen. And Lumen said that it outperformed traditional channels by um, by, by by 11 times uh, or more. And of course, this has given Bidstack a great platform to, to, to develop and build. The company's raised 5 million raised 5 million at 4.2p in June. So they're, they're well funded through to the end of the year. Of course, we have James Draper, who's the CEO. He's got over 10% of the company. And Francesco Precizelli, who also owns, um, uh, owns a chunk of the business too. Um, so they also have a very strong advisory board that they've developed over the past few years. They have Andrew House, former PlayStation boss. Um, they have Will Cassoy from Ad Colony, also former Walt Disney as well. Brian Nieder from EA, Electronic Arts um, and Gatepath, Jonathan Epstein from GameSpot, Joel Livesey from Trade Desk, um, Pete Beanie from Spotify and WPP. So a, a very a very strong uh, advisory board um, that are involved with and, and looking at the development process uh, for Bidstack. So in terms of where they are now, they as I said, they raised five million in June, and that in the June interims, they they reported revenues of three hundred thousand. Um, that's up from thirty thousand previously. Um, cash after the raise of uh, just under six million. Um, and James Draper said that the what they were seeing was continued progress, and the customers that had been trialing the platform were now moving beyond their initial test spends. Um, Company also, or the the uh, platform also won an IAB Gold Standard Award, um, and James Draper said at the time that the results uh, for 2020 would be significantly second half weighted and were currently in line. So, of course, um, based on what happened last year, there was a trading statement out in December. We expect to see an update from Bidstack in. Um, uh, 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 by the end of the year in terms of progress. And of course, those numbers will then be announced probably um, in February, uh, February, March next year. Just to say as well, um, John, John, we were talking beforehand and you made the point that um, there are other players in the mix. Uh, and I think uh, two privately owned companies, Anzu raised six and a half million and Admix raised seven million. But I think um, Bidstack, uh, whilst it has competitors, Bidstack is the the listed entity in this field. So, of course, um, it, I, I, I would imagine it's possible at some stage that they may look to make acquisitions. Of course, 
there's nothing in the public domain about that. So, um, but anyway, I, I, we, we have the company currently trading 5.4p, giving it a 21 million market cap. Um, if they have made progress um, uh, in in revenues and with these relationships, I think the the, the company is well placed for exponential growth and could could rise very very rapidly from this point. So I'm probably going to face uh, a torrent of of emails and comments on social media as I did last time. But uh, I mean, I made the point around the interims that you know a, a revenue of only three hundred thousand in the first half was. Uh, very disappointing, yeah. And I, I, I think that if um, we don't see significant multiples of that figure in the second half, um, it, it does uh, spell some trouble for for bid stack going forward. So I'm going to be keeping uh, an eye on those uh, those uh, those numbers when that when they do come out. But but Alan, you you mentioned there. Guild, sorry, Gfinity, and and one I want to bring in here is is Guild Esports. Mm. Um, of course, we're looking at the gaming market. I could make the argument that the way to play the gaming market is in the esports arena because we're we're seeing obviously significant revenue increases in Gfinity. Um, Bidstack have you know made a point of saying that they have an agreement with with Gfinity, which. Um, you know, I think they hoped would, would associate some revenues going forward. Yeah. Um, but we're looking at Guild Esports, David Beckham, quite highly associated with them. They've already seen significant um, sponsorship deals, which far outstrip anything the bid stack done has done so far uh, in terms of revenue. Do, I mean, do, do you think it could be the case if we're looking at revenue figures next year um, that investors in bid stack that are looking at playing uh, the growth in, in in digital gaming have gone down the wrong route in looking at the advertising when really that the, the real money to be made is in the the esports side of things well that's a very interesting point jonathan and and you know that, that it's a very it's a very uh salient point too uh back to gfinity of course gfinity and venatus launched their own advertising platform um uh i think it was april this year and they generated £200,000 in the first month from a standing start. Now, of course, Bidstack um, has involvement in that. Exactly how much it will generate from that, I don't know. But, um, but all the signs are, I think, um, I think, it's, I think uh, for GFantasy's numbers, the, um, that advertising platform is going to generate, I think, well over a million pounds for them uh, in uh, on the year it might be more but I, i'm not going to be i'm not going to sort of quote exact numbers because i i don't know but just based on the turnover already so that's from a standing start so if um if with bid, bid stacks relationship there obviously there'll be a commission to come there um and also with the other esports platforms too and i agree yes esports is huge but that that's one element of gaming with what bid stack offer you take a step back from that it has it, it's got dynamic ad placement for the entire gaming industry at every level. And I think that's what makes Bidstack as an investment so exciting is that when you're going to the, the big agencies like Dentsu, like um, DoubleClick and so on, and these companies are looking to place ad campaigns for um, you know global brands like Coca-Cola or, or, or Audi or, or whoever, um, they'll, they'll look at, um, they, they can now look at, the gaming industry as another dimension. So you have TV advertising, you have 
you have radio, you have got press, and now you're looking at um, now you're looking at the gaming the gaming industry too, and an opportunity to promote your brand there. And I think that's where this is so exciting. Esports is just one part of gaming. Um, it's a huge part, nonetheless, but it's just one part of it. Um, you know, Bidstack addresses the whole gaming industry, and I think that's what still appeals to me about this stock. It's such a huge marketplace, and it's got an opportunity to reach into every corner of that sector. Indeed. So I'm sure this is, as soon as we get an update, Alan, this is one that we'll be discussing again on, on the podcast. But um, I, I think, as, as I said, if they don't post significant increases in, in revenue, the current market cap of, of around about 21 million could start to look uh, a, a little rich. So one that I'm sure we will revisit, Alan. So Moving on now, let's uh, we we touched on these and alluded to them at the beginning of the podcast in stocks that had some exposure to COVID nineteen. Yes. Um, now we look at Destiny Pharma. Now this is one um, you know it's, it's not an Avactor or, or a Novasite or a Synergen, which you know have been very highly involved, but they have been um, active within the, the COVID nineteen space. And, and they've had a significant drop off. But what, what's been uh, what's been happening there, Alan, with Destiny Pharma? Well, Destiny Pharma have had a had, had a very strong year. Um, and I mean, uh, you know, I should say, of course, uh, Brand Communications, my business, is based at the Sussex Innovation Centre, and Destiny Pharma have been based there almost as, well for for longer than I've been working there, and I've been there since two thousand. So, um, you know, many many years. Um, so, and I've seen the company kind of grow from. This little, this little pharma, pharma tech business in the, in the centre to the listed entity that it is today. Um, but it start the company um, has all it, it, the company's um, aims are now stated um, that they they're, they're building a world leading anti infection company, and of course the biggest one of the biggest uh, issues uh, faced um, uh, in regard to infections or one of the biggest infection risks is when people go into hospital. And of course, uh, you know, we've, we've heard so much this year about people being worried to go into hospital because of the risk of COVID. But that's just one part of it. Um, MRSA, the hospital superbug, is uh, is a huge problem. And there's also the infection C. difficile, uh, which is one of the leading causes of hospital-acquired infections in the USA. There's something like half a million cases every year over there. So what um, uh, Destiny Farm have been developing in the first instance is a light activated drug to fight um to 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 fight uh, the the MRSA bug and other bugs in there and they've um they have um undergone as all pharma uh, as all sort of drugs and pharmaceutical companies have to do they undergo uh, uh phase 1 phase 2 and phase 3 trials and over the years um uh, destiny's xf73 has been developed to the point where there is now a, um, there's there's now a uh, an application uh, with a nasal gel that uh, taps into a huge multi-billion pound marketplace uh, throughout the world. Um, they've undertaken a number of uh, joint ventures and they're currently uh, recruiting patients for the, their phase three trial, which is um, they're, they're seeking 125 patients for the trial and there are 110 at the moment. And that's Neil Clark, the chief executive, said they would be they will complete that by the end of the year. Um, the, the company is uh, has um, 
uh, uh, has has uh, undergone a number of FDA protocol amendments, and they've been they've been uh, they've been sort of praised on their excellent safety data to date. Um, and uh, along with this, alongside this, they have uh, research projects running with Cardiff, Sheffield, Southampton, and Aston universities, which are all making progress. Um, they've received a number of grants along the way as well, and um, um, and and, and uh, we're at the, at the point now where Neil Clark has said there will be data on the XS seventy three trial phase three trial um, uh, by the end of quarter one next year. So once that comes along, if there's a step forward with XS seventy three and it ticks all the boxes and there are no poor side reactions from the from the trial patients, um, it's going to be huge a huge huge day for for um, destiny. But as we now know, Destiny isn't just a one-trick pony. Um, in September, it announced uh, a, a joint venture with a company called Sporgen to develop COVID-19 immunity. Now, this is um, using the innate human, the, the, the innate human immunity system to generate immunity. Um, and uh, um, the, 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 the company, or the two companies are now working on progressing this. And of course, they... Um, although the the uh, joint venture was announced, it's um, they expect to start first clinical trials in eighteen months. So this is this is some way away, but it will use the same delivery mechanism uh, uh, via a nasal spray or nasal gel. Um, and uh, it, what they've already said is that uh, once it's completed, this will be easy to produce. They can produce in high volume and low cost. Um, and at the same time, they announced they'd received an eight hundred thousand grant from. Innovate UK to progress the uh, to progress the the sport gen joint venture. So again, that's progressing. Um, we've already said, of course, that uh, despite the vaccines from uh, from, from uh, Pfizer and uh, the US company uh, this week, um, this is this is very much going to be uh, a long term fix. So um, if the if if COVID nineteen immunity can be administered in the same way longer term as the XF73 bug, then it's going to make hospitals a much safer place. So that pro- that's been progressing. And then, of course, a, um, a few days ago, um, uh, we, uh, well, it was, it was last week, in fact, um, Destiny announced that uh, it was raising £11.5 million at 65p um, to acquire the global rights for NTCDM3, which is a phase three asset for prevention of C. difficile occurrence. And as I said earlier, we already know C. difficile is the leading cause of hospital-acquired infections in the USA. Um, the phase two trial has been successful. So the the board took the view that um, the uh, the uh, C. difficile um, asset uh, dovetailed in very nicely with the work they were doing with XF73 and, of course, Spore Gen 2. So they uh, it, it basically broadens and enhances their their standing as a, a world daily anti-infection company. So the raise uh, um, basically entailed a placing at, at uh, 65p to raise 7.5 million, a subscription of just over 2 million at the same price, and also an open offer to investors uh, to raise 2 million. And I'm already shareholder in Destiny Pharma, um, so I, I've I've already taken up my uh, my um, my uh, offer shares in that regard. So... Um, I think Destiny's got a great future, but uh, I would advise you to do your own research and and take a look at the company. But I think uh, I think uh, we're well poised for a great 2021. 
uh, once we get the data back from the, the trials at the end of quarter one. Fantastic. And I'm, I'm just looking at the chart here of Destiny Pharma, and of course it fell very sharply on the news of the Pfizer vaccine. But, you know, listening there, there there's, and obviously looking through the recent reports, they have quite a lot going on um, apart from the, the COVID. I mean, how much of that fall do you think is overdone and the, the market just, just taking up and, and tarring every stock that has some involvement with the, with the COVID, a COVID um, therapeutic vaccine or, or PPE or what, whatever it may be and just selling them all when really they're not looking at what the rest of the company's doing and I mean do you think that move's bit been overdone and also do you think that maybe that the move up initially before the sell-up uh, the, the sell-off was uh, a little bit rich because they had some involvement with uh, with, with COVID-19 uh the fight against COVID-19 and, you know, people bought into that stock when really, you know, it was something, yes, they're doing it, but it didn't really justify the high valuation before the sell-off last uh, last Monday. Um, that's a good point. I, I, and I think, uh, I know, I you know, looking looking around and speaking to people on that Monday, um, a lot of people were furious that because it just seemed that the market was irrationally marking down um, pharma stocks that were, you know, good quality pharma stocks that um, uh, simply because a vaccine had been found and that was it, they were no longer needed, which is incredibly naive and, and uh, short-sighted. And of course, that's not the case because, as we've said, you know, companies like uh, Novacyte, Avacta, um, and Synergen and and the others, um, the, the the whilst the COVID offering has their COVID offerings have developed, the extra money that's come in as a result of that. Has been used to uh, use used to reinvest into the the core offering, and that is very much a case in point with its FEMA technologies for for cancer. But of course, um, Destiny Pharma was never about COVID in the first place. It just so happens the Sporgen joint venture to develop COVID immunity fitted in very well with its XF seventy three drug. Um, and the formal it was actually that day that the company announced it was raising the money at 65p. So um, the fall, in my opinion, on that day for Destiny Pharma wasn't to do at all with COVID. It was actually to do with the fact that people saw they were raising money at a lower level than the, the share price was prior to that day. Okay, okay. Yeah, it's an interesting one. And, and, and as you've outlined there, um, it's a potentially significant uh, projects that they're working on so I'm, I'm sure that's one that we touch on again Alan at some point uh, in uh, in Destiny Pharma. So to finish off here is a company that, to the, that looking at it you know I just want to strip out what they actually do but um, I'm, I'm particularly uh, attracted to their their chart formation this year they they saw um, you know relatively strong uh, finished to to the end of 2019. Of, of course, it moved sideways at the beginning and, and fell off, as most things did uh, in March uh, yeah. with the uh, the vaccine news. But but since then, you know, it went down to to 25p and it had a a steady recovery and then spiked higher on on some news in uh, in the beginning of uh, August. And it actually had a gap formation. And you know, obviously, statistics on gaps. Um, be, being filled, I think it's some ninety percent of the time. Um, it has gone back down, and uh, and filled that gap. 
which is particularly interesting because it's been trading sideways along there and, and building a bit of a base technically. Books yeah. um, RA International. Can you give uh, a bit of background of what's been happening there? Yeah, sure, Jonathan. Yeah. Um, so RA International, um, I, I have spoken about the company. I've, I've been following myself for some years. And um, um, so RA International, Epicode, RAI, um, the, the company was uh, formed by Lars and Soraya Norfelt, uh, um, husband and wife. Um, and uh, both of them used to work for the UN um, and they were involved uh, in logistics operations to uh, bring energy power and resources to uh, charity projects and uh, and commercial projects in hard to get to areas in in remote areas um and um ra international was basically uh, a company that was not not spun out of the un as such but it was a company that was started by them through the connections that they formed and this was um it was initially picked out by joanne hart actually that's how it came to my attention in the first place shares shares were then trading at uh, just under 70p and she said um, the, the the company uh, offered uh, great potential because it was winning contracts with with um, some of the, the some of the largest uh, organisations in the world um, and also large commercial organisations um, bringing sort of resource and help. So it was a it was a good investment uh, with an ethical dimension. Um, and certainly uh, the, the company has uh, had issues with COVID um, in 2020. But as you rightly say, the stock fell off a cliff in March when everything else did, and it came, it's come back really strongly since then. Um, the company said in March that results would be delayed for the year in line with COVID uh, FCA guidance. But um, since then, it's, it's announced a, a series of, of contract wins. It announced um, an additional 15.6 million contract win uh, with IAP Worldwide Services in Africa, and that was on top of a number of existing contracts it already has with IAP. So it added a further 15.6 million on top of that. Um, and also announced uh, a, a major win with an oil and gas client uh, worth uh, uh, some $60 million over two years to supply integrated services across the Southern African countries. Um, and this is in August. And also in August, it was appointed preferred contracted to Kaluli Mining, uh, worth some $20 million over two years. So again, um, it's been a steady steady series of contract wins. Um, and when the company announced the delayed interims uh, in September, um, it, uh, it basically said that uh, the order book at 30th of June stood at $132 million. That's a Ford order book. Um, but by August 31st, it had increased to $185 million. So the company have said that um, the great thing is it's uh, they can plan well ahead. They've got good visibility, so they're able to plan these contracts and um, and plan on on developing and investing into the business. But I think what what has also attracted me to this stock as well is its progressive dividend policy. Um, so it's raised the dividend this year. Currently, the yield is just under three uh, percent, but the dividend was raised by twenty five percent this year despite COVID. And of course, uh, with the with the results, it announced a, a, a dividend for the half year of 1.25p. So at the interims, revenues uh, rose to $35 million from $23 million previously. Um, Pre-tax profits were $5 million up from two and a half previously. Earnings per share just under three cents uh, up from one and a half cents previously. 
and it ended the period with 20 million in net cash from 25 million last year. So with that strong forward order book and strong net cash position, you know, this is a very investable company in my book. Um, And, you know, if you bought at this level, you would enjoy an annual dividend yield of 3%, which would beat inflation, but also with substantial potential capital upside too, based on the fact that this they now seem to be the go-to company for um, winning these logistical contracts to service remote locations. Um, and indeed, Sir Ryan Arfelt said uh, in the statement that they were well-placed to withstand any headwinds. And uh, I, I, I just think this company now, it's at a, a juncture where it offers great value and, of course, great potential for 2021. Yes, I mean, th- those year-on-year figures, Alan, do do look uh, particularly healthy. I'm, I'm ju- just looking here at the um, uh, the results, the interim results for the six months to June. Now, ju- just one question here on really bounce-back ability, because, you know, yes, year-on-year, very strong figures, but uh, six months to the 31st of December, uh, we saw revenue of £46 million that fell in the first half down to to 35 million of, of course probably you know covid was that was a large impact of that i mean what is the scope for for ra international to, to bounce back in the second half of, of 2020 and and do you think that we could see revenue um going back up to around that 46 million level that we saw in the second half of last year in the second half of 2020 or, or do you still think that that COVID's going to be keeping a bit of a cap on um, revenue increasing and, and revenue increase from the first half. That's that's a good point, actually, actually Jonathan. I, I, I think the I think the the nature of the contracts that uh, that our uh, international win they are protracted, and some of those I think I think a year or so ago uh, the results they they missed their results forecast for the year because of contract delays. So of course these things do happen, and there is. Uh, there is some risk in that, but I mean, yeah, the, the revenues to December, as you say, forty-five million uh, revenues from January to June, thirty-five million. But of course, uh, the previous year, January to June two thousand nineteen, they only recorded revenues of twenty-three million. So that's still a, a substantial rise, regardless. Um, and certainly, with a forward order book of one hundred eighty-five million um, up from one hundred thirty-two million in June, I think, I think. Uh, investors can have confidence in a solid result for the second half of the year. So, uh, yeah, certainly, I, I mean, I don't see anything to unduly worry or concern anyone here at this juncture. Fantastic. Alan, three very interesting companies there. And thank you very much for being on the podcast today. Thanks, Jonathan. Good to be here. So just, just a reminder for everyone listening that the stocks discussed were RA International, which trades under the ticker of RAI, Bidstack, which trades under the ticker of BIDS, and Destiny Pharma, which trades on the ticker of DEST. Alan, once again, thank you very much. Thanks, Jonathan. Speak next week. We hope you enjoyed listening to the UK Investor Magazine podcast. Please do share the podcast and we really value any reviews and comments you leave us in your chosen podcast player. The views presented by the hosts and guests of the UK Investor Magazine podcast are in no way investment advice. And please remember all investment involves risk.